Welcome back to Attorney Time, the legal podcast for the business-minded, hosted by attorneys at the law firm Holly Troxell. Attorney Time brings legal expertise to you. In each episode, Holly Troxell's team of experienced attorneys will cover a broad range of legal topics, from intellectual property and patents to tips for startup companies. Phil Mackay is the chair of Holly Troxell's Patent Intellectual Property and Internet Groups. Phil has prepared and prosecuted hundreds of domestic and foreign patent applications. With over 20 years of experience, he helps clients achieve strategic business objectives, authors non-infringement and validity opinions, and provides strategic technology licensing and portfolio management counseling to numerous companies throughout the technology sector. Phil has also taken part in technology licensing negotiations involving companies ranging from small startups to some of the most well-known corporations in the world. In addition, as corporate patent counsel, He has helped establish the patent program, policies, and procedures used by a Fortune 100 corporation to create one of the largest patent portfolios in the Silicon Valley. He is licensed to practice law in California, Washington, the District of Columbia, and before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. In this episode of Attorney Time, we are joined by Holly Troxell attorney, Phil McKay. Hi, this is Phil McKay. I'm the chairperson of the patent department here at Holly Troxel Ennis and Holly in Boise, Idaho. Uh, this is the second installment in a series of patent discussions. These discussions are basically geared towards the new inventor or a small company that doesn't have a patent department established or anybody that doesn't have a, a, a strong knowledge of patents and wants to get a general idea of how the system works. Uh, This is a very general hypothetical discussion. It's somewhat simplistic, and I want to stress that if you have patent issues or you're considering patents, you really need to get in touch with your patent attorney and tell them your specific facts and specific issues uh, and get their advice, you know, tailored to you. Uh, any area of law, it's very hard to do, uh, give advice in the hypothetical, and this is not legal advice. This is just more of a discussion introduction. In that vein, uh, I'm going to read the following dis- uh, disclaimer. Uh, the following material is intended for hypothetical discussion purposes only. Nothing herein should be relied on or construed as legal advice. Nor should the material herein be used as a substitute for the opinion of legal counsel based on a full understanding of the law and the particular facts associated with your specific issues. So that said, uh, we'll move on to today. Again, like I said, this is the second installment. And today what we're going to talk about is a a subject that really was the first and most important in my mind based on the calls I get from small inventors uh, throughout the country, a lot of them here in Idaho, but uh, also on the West Coast and Texas and so forth. And I can't tell you how many calls I've got where somebody says, I've got the greatest invention ever. It's selling like hotcakes. I want to get a patent. And what raises the red flag with me is it's selling like hotcakes. Because actually you need to get a patent on file, uh, well, for foreign jurisdictions before you disclose it and certainly before you sell it. And in the United States, you only have a year to get that patent on file after that first well, what we're going to call bar events. And so I wanted to explain what these were to people so that they could keep them in mind and not lose these rights before they've even filed the patent application. And I I can't tell you how many calls where I had to uh, tell people, well, the bad news is you've lost at least the core rights. Now tell me if there's been any improvements in less 
than a year, within the last year, uh, that perhaps we can get patents on the improvements. Uh, that's uh, something you want to discuss with your own patent attorney. But before I do that, uh, these, uh, this is the second installment, and there's a previous installment about patent theory or introduction to patents that you might want to go listen to. But if you don't have time, uh, I'm going to just talk real quickly, and if you want more detail, go back to the previous segment, but uh, what a patent is. And in essence, a patent is a property right which provides the patentee, you hopefully, a monopoly for a limited period of time. And that period of time is 20 years from the filing date. And that's a pretty big chunk of time. Even in the most simple technology fields, 20 years is a lifetime. And certainly in the electronics or software industries, 20 years is several lifetimes. So it's a pretty good grant of a monopoly. Uh, and the deal is, and again, go back to the previous installment if you want more detail, but the government's willing to provide this monopoly right in exchange for the patentee disclosing something new, and that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today, uh, and disclosing it in such a way that somebody who understands the field will understand the invention and how to do it by reading the patent. And someone uh, in the field, is, is the term in patent law is someone of skill in the art, and that's really variable. If it's simple mechanical, someone of skill in the art might be somebody that you pull off of the street, usually not. But if you get into the software or microprocessor design or so forth, the, one, the person of skill in the art can often be a PhD or higher. Um, so you don't have to reinvent the wheel when you explain what's going on in the patent, but somebody of the appropriate level of skill for the technology involved should be able to understand what you're doing and how you're doing it based on the disclosure in the patent. Very quickly, the reason the government's willing to do this is they don't want you hiding in your garage making the perpetual motion machine invention and not disclosing it to anybody because you're afraid somebody's going to steal it. So in order to bring you out so you, you explain this to people so they can improve upon it, they're willing to give you this monopoly for 20 years so you can make money on it before anybody else can do it. So that's, uh, again, the previous segment talks a little bit more about that. Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to hit before jumping into today's particular topic is when you should think patents. Well, the patent attorney's answer to that is always. But uh, you certainly want to think about patents when you're thinking about what it is that you're doing different. What is it that makes your company or your idea important, different, better? It's that elevator pitch when you're telling somebody why they should invest in your company and you tell them, because we do this this way, and it's the best way anybody's ever done it. Or we do this, and nobody's ever done it before. These are what are called core competency or core advantages. And uh, those are what you definitely want to try and get a patent to uh, to protect, well, the core of your business. Uh, the question I tell people to ask themselves is, what do I do or what am I going to do that would be devastating to me if the competition was able to copy it or worse yet, under a first-to-file system, get a patent on it and stop me from doing it. So you definitely want to think about patents when you're thinking about that. So today, again, we're going to talk about what's called, there's a bunch of names for these, 102 bars, bar dates, grace periods. These are all areas where if you do one of these three events, three actions, I should say, that uh, we're going to discuss today, you in the U.S., you start a clock a one-year clock, 
And in most of the rest of the world, you could lose your patent rights immediately without ever having even filed for a patent application or filed a patent application. So I'm going to give a brief overview of the three areas, and then we're going to talk about each one in some length. So these 102 bars or uh, the, these events that start the clock, they're all really forms of the same thing, which is a public disclosure. Uh, but we break them down for explanation purposes. We got a, what straight out public disclosure or an offer for sale or a sale of the uh, invention or a public use. And I'm going to go through each one, but these are the three things. Before you publicly disclose something, before you offer to sell it or sell it, or before you use it in public, uh, you want to make sure that either you have a patent application on file if it's for foreign rights, uh, or be willing to walk away from the patent rights. Or in the US, if you do one of these three things, you've got to get a patent application on file within a year, or you'll lose those rights. So let's, that said, uh, let's go through each of them individually. The, the basis of these bars that we're going to talk about come from, I'll read a little bit of law. Uh, it's basically Section 102B of 35 USC. Uh, it's law. And here's, here's the law, and I'll, I'll break this down for you. But uh, the invention was you cannot get a patent if the invention was patented or described in a printed publication in this or a foreign country or in public use or on sale in this country more than one year before the date of the application for patent in the United States. So this is uh, the basis of what we're going to discuss, but we're going to break that down and try to put that in just plain old English and explain how it works. So the first one we're going to talk about, and again, remember, these are all, you know, if you, if you really look at it, these are all really just versions of public disclosure, but we're going to break them down into these three components. Um, so public disclosure, let's make that the first one. So the interesting thing here is that, in theory, public disclosure needs to be printed. Uh, in order to start this clock uh, or disqualify you from foreign uh, protection. And the disclosure has to be enabling. Um, I, if you want a little more discussion about enablement, check out the previous one on patent introduction. But enablement, again, is where by uh, looking at your disclosure, someone of skill in the art, and that could be a PhD, someone of skill in the art can read it and understand uh, how, what your invention is and how to practice it. So in theory, it has to be enabled. So that's your first thing is don't put out any printed or, frankly, I would argue not any kind of disclosure that really discusses the invention and the ins and outs of how it works. Um, I, like I said, technically printed, but you have to be careful when you're giving a verbal presentation or a verbal discussion of your invention. If you're giving this type of detail that would, be provide, uh, that would provide enablement, Somebody out there could be taking notes. Somebody could be blogging this. Somebody could be putting it out there in a form where you're uh, under the law, it becomes printed, which includes email, blogs, and so forth. Um, putting your invention out there, and you could lose your rights based on that if you've described it and they're uh, putting the notes out on the Internet, for instance. Uh, the, the basic question I ask there is why risk it? You know, get, get this thing on patent before you do any kind of disclosure. And always, the more detail you're providing in either a oral or written disclosure, the more you better think about getting that patent on file uh, uh, before for foreign rights or within a year for U.S. rights. 
Uh, the other thing that can create a complication these days is first to file. If others see or hear you or, or read something that you disclose, yes, in the U.S. you have a year to get on file, and that's, that, that's a fact. But if somebody sees your idea and then comes up with a twist on it or expands on it or that prompts them to go out and file not on your idea, they can't steal it, but uh, something similar, and then they're the first to file, well, that patent can be used against you to limit your rights and perhaps prevent you from getting a patent. So again, first to file has somewhat of a, a, a mitigation on this one-year uh, grace period. Uh, because you never know what other people are up to and how in this race to the patent office can really get in your way. Uh, so public disclosure, technically printed, but be careful. Uh, the less said, the better. And, uh, and then there's the fix for this is these, uh, it's called an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. And you basically, anybody, if possible, Anybody that's going to be exposed to this printed material or even your discussion, if you can put them under this NDA, it signs and says, oh, I understand that I need to keep this secret, then that is not a public disclosure. And the other thing you want to do is any documents that are being sent around, uh, again, you don't want to enable it. Put it at a high level, but also mark it as confidential. Uh, again, trying to get past that public element of public disclosure. And again, the best thing is not to disclose it until you have a patent application of one form or another on file. Again, as with all three of these, if you do have a public disclosure, realize that you may have lost your foreign rights, most countries, you may have lost your rights immediately, and in the United States, you better make sure you get a patent on file within a year of that first public disclosure. Um, then we have the next category, which is public use. Again, just a subcategory of public disclosure, but there's some interesting stuff here. This public use is probably the one where I get the most surprised when I'm talking to people. Um, a public use is a use by somebody other than the inventor, but remember in the patent law, the inventor is the person that actually invented this, but often these patents are assigned to parent companies. Well, the parent company is not the inventor in the US, under the U.S. law, and so it could be used by your employer. But uh, use other than the inventor and uh, in a public setting. Now, here's the important piece to that public setting, and here's where the confusion comes from. Is people want to say, well, yeah, I did this, but nobody could see it. And, uh, and so we were using it, but nobody could see inside the box and see what was going on. And that really doesn't matter. It's the fact that the invention was being used the way it's meant to be used in a public setting other than by the inventor in their garage, essentially. And, and that basically uh, it was used but not seen. The scene isn't the key part. It's that it's being used. The examples of this uh, are if I went inside the engine of my car, and let's say I came up with a new inventive piston ring, and then I put that piston ring on there, and then I, uh, you know, other than me, the inventor, somebody used it in a public setting, or it was used to sell cars, and we never told them the piston ring was in there, but it was used in a public setting, uh, then nobody could see it. Nobody could see this piston ring. It's deep inside the block. You'd have to break down the engine and take it apart, but it would still be classified as a public use because the engine was doing what it's supposed to do, including my inventive piece, in a public setting. So that would be a public disclosure. In a software world or a data-driven world, this often comes into play when you've got a data center 
and then you've got a public-facing interface, and you take the data from the, uh, from the interface, you process it on the back end, and then you give it back to the user or somehow it's used in a public setting uh, where the user is just doing what users do. Even though the user had no idea where this was going on, that it was going on, that the algorithm that was used, that the AI was used, whatever, it doesn't matter. The invention, wherever it lie, was being used in a public setting in that case, and that would be a public use. Again, one way to get around public use is that anybody that uh, has access to this or uses it is under an NDA. That's a non-disclosure agreement. That's a little tough, usually. Um, and then the other exception for public use is an experimental use. So this comes into beta offerings and software, or uh, you let some people use it to see, to get data and input to improve the invention or to even see if it works. Well, that's an experimental use, and that is an exception to public use. But in order to qualify, it's a very, you have to keep records of the input you got, what was, what was performed, when it was performed, by whom, and the input you got back. Uh, you can only do it for a reasonable amount of time. You can't be in experimental use for decades. And uh, typically it's a good idea, those that are you're claiming are an experimental use, don't charge them for that use. It's much easier to make an argument that that was an experimental use. The other thing I want to hit before I move on to the next uh, sale bar is uh, while we're on NDAs, let's have a quick discussion there. Uh, here in Idaho and in many regions of the country, people have uh, sort of a mix between a business relationship and a personal relationship. And NDAs, this non-disclosure agreement, can be sort of become personal. Uh, I go to my friend, slant, potential business partner, or somebody I'm disclosing this to, and I ask them to sign this NDA, their response, if they're a friend, might be, wow, you don't trust me? Uh, this is getting very lawyer-esque. We don't want these lawyers involved, heaven forbid. Um, and it can be, actually be a bit of a speed bump and, a, and a, a barrier to getting things done. One way you can get somebody to sign an NDA is to say, this has nothing to do with you personally. I trust you completely. But under the patent law, I have to make sure this doesn't get categorized as a public disclosure or public use. So if you can sign this NDA, it's really just to protect my patent rights. Uh, I completely trust you, but I have to have this document in order to satisfy the patent law. So blame it on the patent attorneys. Okay, so that's uh, public use. Again, as with public disclosure and sale bar that we're about to talk about, if you do this, uh, in, you can lose your rights in a lot of places of the world immediately. And in the U.S., you better get yourself a utility patent or a provisional patent on file within a year or you're going to lose those rights. Okay, so the last one we're going to discuss today is on sale bar or offer for sale bar. And this can be probably the most legalistic of the, uh, the sale bars. The courts use something called uh, uh, totality of circumstances test. Uh, if you want to go into the legalistic aspect of that, uh, contact your patent attorney uh, and they can go through it. It's very fact specific. But in general, um, again, it's another subcategory to my mind of public disclosure. But uh, the deal is, is that you had somehow offered to have somebody invest in or buy or have sold the invention. Um, and uh, the tricky part of this is, at what level of conception of the invention uh, is an offer for sale considered to be uh, legitimate? And 
what this means is, is that if I have, uh, let's say I say, wow, wouldn't it be great to have a perpetual motion machine? And then I say, hey, you want to invest in my perpetual motion machine? And that's basically all I say. Um, that would not be a legitimate offer for sale because you haven't enabled it. You haven't even really completely conceived it. And you don't really understand the invention. By the way, if you have come up with something where you think you've conceived uh, a uh, perpetual motion machine, uh, give me a call, I'll do it on a percentage basis. <laughs> but anyway, the, uh, uh, the fully conceived is the key statement here. And uh, one rule you could use to try and figure out if you've completely conceived it or if it was actually an offer for sale is if at the moment you were making that offer, or you, well, if you sold it, obviously you have made it. But uh, at the moment you're making that offer, ask yourself if I froze, I did like a twilight zone with the uh, stopwatch and I froze time, and I could turn around and explain my invention in enough detail to a patent attorney that it would be enabled, remember that's that one of skill in the art, uh, and somebody could read it and understand what my invention was, even though I didn't turn around to that patent attorney, if I understood it well enough to do that, then that's probably fully conceived, and that would be a legitimate offer for sale. Uh, obviously the two slam dunk ones are, if you've created a prototype and it's working well, and then you offer to sell it, well, that's going to be a legitimate offer for sale. Uh, if you sell the item, obviously that was a working item. So that's an offer for sale. But it gets a little trickier when you haven't built a prototype. Uh, maybe you don't even have drawings of it, but you understand it well enough that you could have explained it to a patent attorney. That would be the way I would look at it and say, if I could, that's going to be a legitimate offer for sale. The other thing that's tricky about offer for sale is of the three, it's the one that varies the most in the rest of the world. In the U.S., it's pretty much what I describe. But uh, in the rest of the world, some of them worry about offer for sale. Some of them have different standards for offer for sale. So if you're interested in foreign protection, you really need to get with that patent attorney and uh, figure out what you've done and what the ramifications are within the particular country you're worried about. In the U.S., again, it's a one-year clock. Uh, in uh, some of the uh, uh, jurisdictions throughout the world, other countries in the world, it can be an immediate lost patent rights. But again, it's probably the most variable standard of the three uh, in terms of what, what actually is an offer for sale and what is not, uh, or if it even matters. So these three things are pretty devastating. And they also can be somewhat mitigated by this first to file. First to file, if somebody sees your idea and you say, oh, I got a year to file in the, the patent office in the United States, but somebody else goes off and maybe improves on it or twists it and files their own patent, um, you may or may not be able to prove that they stole your idea, uh, but it's certainly going to complicate things. Uh, one of the things I say that... Uh, uh, boy, the people that work for me would just be groaning, or they will be when they're listening to this, is there's an old movie called A Few Good Men, and Tom Cruise's character keeps telling the associates that work for him, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove, which indeed is the legal standard. But I would add that it's not what you know, it's what you can prove at a reasonable cost. So if somebody actually did steal your idea, made some changes to it, and filed on it, uh, you, in theory, could prevail and get those patent rights. Uh, however, it could cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees to do that. So really, the, your smartest move is to get some sort of application on file as soon as possible. 
And uh, if you listen to the previous segment on uh, introduction to patents, there's various types of patent applications. One that uh, comes into play with these 102 bars quite a bit is provisional applications. And provisional applications, boy, if you come to me and say, oh, man, 364 days ago, I definitely publicly disclosed this. Uh, do I have any chance of getting any rights? And I would say yes. But, uh, and this is something I don't say very often, I like my provisional applications to be very complete. But I'm going to say we got 24 hours. We better slap something together as much as we can get together, try to organize it and put some uh, 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 formatting on it and, and maybe a background and a summary and get this thing in to protect your patent rights. I would say more than any other reason, provisional applications are filed over utility applications because people have waited too long and they're really worried about losing their rights. Um, you can go back and listen to the segment on patent theory to talk a little bit more about provisionals. I will also be giving a future segment directed only to provisional applications and the pitfalls, but uh, that's one option. The other is to get that utility application, the real application, on file uh, before, well, in the U.S., within a year of that public disclosure, public use, or sale, uh, and in foreign rights before you go out and do any of those three, just to make sure that you uh, keep those rights. Uh, but the good news is you get a provisional on file, or utility file on file, or any other type of patent application on file, all these issues disappear at least within the constraints of what's in the application. So once you get that one of those on file, uh, you, now you can go out and talk about it. You can try to sell it. You can do whatever you want with it as long as what you do and what you disclose is covered by either the provisional utility or other form of patent application. Um, as I discussed also in the previous segment on basic patent introduction, with the provisional, you've got to make sure that you get a full-blown utility application on file within a year. So the provisional is just a marker. It's not examined, and, uh, and you've got to get that utility on file within one year. One other thing that's of interest is with both provisionals and utilities, unless you tell the patent office that they can publish the patent application, which uh, I'll talk about later. If you want foreign protection, you're going to have to let them publish it within a certain amount of time. But... Uh, basically, the patent application is secret between you and the government. So you're not actually risking much in the way of trade secret rights or any other rights until either you tell the patent office you can publish it, in which case it becomes public knowledge, it's out there, or the patent issues. Remember, the deal is that you get the monopoly right for disclosing it. So once the patent issues and you get those rights, these things become published and anybody can read them. And uh, once that happens you know, obviously you've had a public disclosure. Um, so, takeaways from this segment, for patents, for anything you do that will be devastating if the competition was able to copy it, or worse, get a patent on it and stop the company from doing it, or you, uh, you better think patents, you better be careful about disclosing it in any of these three ways, because you could lose your patent rights, and in some cases you could lose the core competency of your company. Um, whenever you realize you're solving an unanticipated problem or creating a new workaround, think patents. And whenever you're fixing a bug or responding to customer feedback and making changes to your idea slant invention, think patents. So even if you have a base patent and then for based on customer feedback, say you realize that, wow, it would be so much better if I added this to the original invention, you're going to file something called a continuation in part. 
and uh, typically not as expensive to file as a initial utility application, but you're going to put that new material in there. And the good news is you get a second patent application potentially. Uh, the bad news is you have to pay another filing fee. Anyway, when in doubt, you absolutely patent whatever you can by whatever mechanism before you publicly disclose it that you can afford and handle. And then keep track of any public disclosures, public uses, or offers for sale. And make sure that you put a big bright thing on your calendar. You know, be nice to your patent attorney. Do it 60 to 90 days before that due date to give them time to prepare you a decent patent application. Uh, but don't let that slip by. Otherwise, you could realize you've got the best thing since sliced bread, and yet you lost your patent rights to it. There is one sort of fix. I'm hesitant to talk about this because you really should get that patent on the base technology. But when I do have cases where somebody have, has an idea and they're making money on it and it's really proved to be their core competency, yet they did disclose it over a year ago, as I noted, I'll come back and say, okay, what have you done within the last year uh, that represents an improvement that we could perhaps get a patent to that improvement? It's not as good, frankly, as having the base technology, but it gives you, provides you some patent protection patent protection for your product at that point. Anyway, uh, again, I want to stress that this is a generalization and perhaps an oversimplification of these rules and that you want to get in touch with a patent attorney and get advice specific to your situation. Uh, and this is not legal advice, but it hopefully has provided you with an introduction and an explanation of how not to lose your rights uh, and, and at least gives you something to think about. Thank you for your time. This is Phil McKay. Thank you.